Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I didn't know some of my professors' sexism and racism could be so great as to be threatened by the presence of someone unlike them. Dr. May Jemison. One afternoon, a kindergarten teacher posed a question to her class. She said, What do you want to be when you grow up? And dozens of little hands shot up in the air. It was 1961, and the students' answers were as colorful as the art on the walls. The boys wanted to be firemen, policemen, mailmen. The girls wanted to be teachers and mothers. But one little girl had yet to be called upon. She waved her arm around, trying desperately to get her teacher's attention, unsure if she could hold her answer inside any longer. Then the teacher finally called her name, Miss May Jemison. And she said, I want to be a scientist. The teacher looked taken aback, even puzzled. She paused, then said, Don't you maybe mean a nurse? In her memoir, Find Where the Wind Goes, Jemison says maybe that teacher was thrown off by the big aspirations of a skinny, brown-skinned inner-city girl. 
Or maybe that teacher felt it was her duty to help her students set realistic goals for themselves. Jemison says while there's nothing wrong with being a nurse, it just wasn't what she wanted to be. A few years earlier, chemist Betty Lou Raskin gave a speech to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In it, she called women the, quote, unclaimed treasures of science, adding that for too long, the mink coat, not the lab coat, had been women's measure of success. And as a result, the 1960s schoolgirl thinks it's far more exciting to serve tea on an airplane than to foam a new lightweight plastic in a laboratory. Jemison was as perplexed by her teacher's response as her teacher was with hers. But she simply put her hands on her hips and said, No, I want to be a scientist. Mae Jemison was born in Decatur, Alabama in October of 1956. She had two older siblings and two hardworking parents. Her father was a roofer. Her mother had completed two years of a college degree, but was forced to drop out to help her ailing parents. When her mother tried to enter the workforce, it became clear that the only jobs for her in Alabama were cleaning the homes of white families. So the Jemisons became part of what's known as the Great Migration, a period in American history when six million African Americans moved from southern to northern states in search of freedom from segregationist laws and economic opportunities. The family boarded a train and headed six hours north from Alabama to Chicago, Illinois. There, Jemison's mother was able to finish her degree and become a teacher, an achievement for which her daughter was very proud, because at the time, women made up only 30% of the workforce. From a young age, Jemison was fascinated by the question, why? One day, she got a splinter in her finger that developed into a minor infection, but she wasn't horrified by the sight of it. Instead, she researched and wrote an entire biology project at school about the critical function of pus. She says growing up, she was just like every other kid. Science just happened to weave its way into all her major interests, which included dinosaurs, planets, and stars. She spent her days knee-deep in a set of encyclopedias that offered a detailed theory on how humans would one day land on the moon. Then, when she was nine years old, a new show premiered on television that was out of this world. It was called Star Trek. With the debut of Star Trek, a whole new universe opened up for Jemison. Suddenly, her dream of becoming a scientist narrowed down to one field and one field only. Astronautics. She says the show captured her imagination and also her respect. She felt less alone knowing there were like-minded people out there. People who also wondered about spaceships and alien life forms. Then... Three years later, as the original Star Trek series came to an end, something extraordinary happened. 
astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center on the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. 600 million people watched with bated breath as the trio traveled 240,000 miles into space, entered the lunar orbit, then safely touched down on its cratered surface. Armstrong then uttering the famous phrase, The eagle has landed. Then the world stared in wonder as Armstrong initiated the first ever moonwalk. Walter Cronkite appeared on air for 27 of the 30 hours it took for Apollo 11 to complete its mission. And on July 4, 1969, the heroic astronauts splashed down in the Pacific Ocean back to their home planet. It was spectacular. Suddenly, young Mae Jemison says she found herself doing something she never thought possible, identifying with adult white men. They were the main characters in science fiction, and they were the talented astronauts, the technicians, the mission control. But that's when Jemison took a step back and thought about the question that had sparked her scientific curiosity in the first place. Why? Why were there no women aboard the Apollo 11 mission? And furthermore, why were there no people of color aboard that mission? Then, an even more profound question popped into her head. What if those astronauts had encountered alien life on the moon, and those aliens thought that sampling of human beings was representative of the entire human species? What if aliens thought this was all we looked like? Throughout elementary school, Jemison excelled across the board in all her studies. The principal of her school even decided she had the brains to skip a grade, from 6th straight to 8th. But before taking the leap, her parents got a piece of news that prompted them to immediately pull their daughter out of her school. Jemison's older brother was being harassed by a few local teens in an attempt to recruit him to a gang. And their parents decided the best way to protect him was to pick up and move the family to a safer part of the city. That meant leaving their largely black neighborhood behind and relocating to a new one, where they became the first and only black family on the block. The schools in that area had become integrated, but much of the surrounding community had not. Jemison said suddenly going to her new school felt like hanging out with the Brady Bunch. Everyone was blonde, and her peers had never seen Afro-textured hair up close before. It made her an outcast. And beyond that, when the principal of her new school read her records that recommended Jemison be bumped up a grade, he wasn't convinced. Jemison says likely because her transcripts were from an inner-city school. But a short while into seventh grade, her homeroom teacher noticed her glaring potential, and she was off to the eighth grade, after all. In her spare time, Jemison would walk to the library all by herself and read books about the creation of the universe, about the vastness of space and the unimaginable concept of infinity. Most of the time, she wasn't allowed to check those books out, 
because they were reference books. So she sat in the library for hours like a sponge, soaking up every word on every page as best she could until the library closed at 9 p.m. She joined a science fiction book of the month club, but it wasn't lost on her how few women appeared on the pages. At best, they were supporting characters, never the scientist or astronaut protagonists. And if a person of color was present, they were rarely pivotal to the storyline, a fact Jemison says frustrated her to no end. She taught herself about dinosaurs and evolution, and she based school projects on the Big Bang Theory. Her family couldn't afford to buy her a telescope, so she became a regular at the Chicago Planetarium. Jemison even decided to take Russian. In light of the Russian-American space race, she figured it would be a benefit to learn the language. She attended camps where she studied constellations. There she learned that on the coldest nights, there were fewer heat refraction waves in the air, making the stars most visible to the naked eye. So when she wasn't doing homework, or at the library, or at science camp, she would put on a coat and go outside after dark just to stare up at the Milky Way. Jemison thought, with the rapid advances in science throughout the 60s, by the time she was old enough to have a career, people would be going into space daily, like they were going into work. And she couldn't wait. As the years went on, Jemison's fascination with outer space only expanded. And by high school, she got to finally take the class she was most excited about, physics. Jemison called up the local hospital and landed herself an internship, where she was able to shadow doctors in a hematology lab. That experience took science off the page and into the real world. She put her new education on the human body toward that year's citywide science fair, where she came in first place. She attended summer school each summer, not because she needed to, but simply because she wanted to learn as much as possible. She received academic awards at the end of the school year, and she became student council president. Jemison describes herself at the time as complicated, because she didn't fit perfectly into a nice little box that the people around her could understand. She was a young woman interested in a male-dominated field, an unapologetic feminist, radical, but not interested in partying, independent, keen to debate important issues. She says, a little square, but still willing to take risks. Yet, her peers knew exactly what box to put her in. Teacher's pet. When it became clear that her teachers liked her, Jemison felt, quote, darts, arrows, and dirty looks flung in her direction. In her senior year of high school, Jemison got all A's in her science courses. She was given the English award. She aced her SATs. And she was voted most likely to succeed. She applied to colleges that would look impressive to NASA one day and was offered scholarships from MIT and Stanford University. And let's not forget, Jemison skipped a grade and she was a late-in-the-year baby. So by the end of her senior year, she was just 16 years old. 
Jemison accepted Stanford's offer. And come September, she found herself standing in departures at O'Hare Airport, waiting to board a flight to California. The 16-year-old waved goodbye to her family, picked up her suitcase full of clothes she'd hand-sewn, and traveled across the country to become an engineer. Jemison says California was the heart of all things new. Innovation, science, and radical politics. So that's where she wanted to be. The Stanford campus was breathtaking. Historic buildings, palm trees, and flowers everywhere. She'd soon learn that she was the youngest person in the dorms. But that didn't intimidate her. Jemison was focused on her goals. To complete an engineering degree and continue her Russian fluency. But when she met with her designated academic advisor to begin discussing her schedule, a couple things became obvious. Firstly, she was the only African-American woman in his group. Nobody spoke to her much, barely even polite chit-chat. Jemison says in her memoir that when she asked her advisor if he recommended she enroll in advanced math courses, given her grades, he dismissed her entirely without bothering to look at her transcripts or learn her background. Then, when she asked his advice on which level of Russian courses she fit into, he flippantly told her she was probably a beginner. Jemison says she felt like crying. Suddenly, she started doubting herself. Maybe she was in over her head. Maybe she wasn't as skilled in math and sciences as she thought. Maybe she was silly for taking Russian. She felt too embarrassed to find out and dropped Russian altogether from her course load. Other black students began to caution her that many people would likely balk at her intended field of study. She says there were rumors around campus that no black student had ever received a passing grade in calculus. And that's when Jemison realized if she ever wanted to become an astronaut, she'd have to do it all on her own. She'd have to put on her armor and power through. In her very first quarter at Stanford, Jemison's workload was substantial. She took calculus, geometry, women's physiology, English, and chemistry. If physics had been the subject she couldn't wait to dive into in high school, her college equivalent was chemistry. She sat eagerly in the front row of her chemistry class to make sure she caught every single word. The subject matter was fascinating. But she says when she would ask a question or raise her hand to make an observation, her professor outright rejected her ideas. And yet, when her male counterpart shot up their melanin-free hands to echo the very same sentiment, They were praised for their ingenuity and critical thinking skills. They'd get a very good observation and a pat on the head. It was a complete shock to Jemison. She says she wasn't prepared for her professor's brazen disregard for her voice or capabilities. As weeks and months went by, Jemison found herself raising her hand less and less. Eventually, she stopped asking questions altogether. By the end of the quarter, she sat in the back row of the lecture hall and disappeared entirely into the brown walls behind her. 
Over the next three years, Jemison started taking more and more courses outside her major, specifically in African-American studies. She took African dance classes, African history and literature, sub-Saharan politics, and she took up a new language, Swahili. Jemison was elected president of the Black Students' Union. She even helped teach two race-related classes. Engineering required the most courses of any Stanford major. So why would Jemison fill her plate with so many other courses? Well, the answer is simple. It was survival. In her science classes, she spent all of her heart, soul, and energy trying desperately to prove herself to professors who ultimately and inevitably, quote, pushed her away. But in her African studies classes, her professors made her feel welcome and celebrated her ideas. She says she wasn't as skilled in those classes as she was in science, but she needed that break, a place to feel accepted and build up the emotional strength to weather the constant rejection. By her senior year, Jemison had amassed enough credits to graduate with both a degree in engineering and a degree in African studies. But Stanford at the time didn't grant double majors, so she was forced to choose. Jemison says the fact she completed two full degrees worth of courses in order to balance her mental health really highlighted the hurdles she faced as a black woman in a predominantly white post-secondary institution. She says there were people on campus that just wished she would drop out. She's been asked before what was the hardest part about her college experience as a whole. Being a woman or being black? She says in her memoir that she doesn't really know. But what she does know is that somehow her confidence in her abilities persevered, although bruised and bloodied along the way. And the woman told no black student had ever passed calculus graduated from the esteemed Stanford University with an engineering degree in 1977. And we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Throughout the 50s and 60s, NASA required all astronaut applicants to be pilots. But at the time, only men were allowed to fly planes in the military. So this automatically disqualified all women from the program. But over time, NASA started shifting astronaut requirements. As space exploration became more and more advanced, they realized they needed more than just pilots on board missions. They needed specialists, like physicists and doctors. To be clear, these positions were still largely filled by men, but they were no longer explicitly exclusionary of women. Space wreaks havoc on the human body, so a doctor on board a mission could monitor and care for the astronauts. They could further examine the effects of zero gravity on human health, as well as help to develop the technology to promote optimal conditions on board the shuttle. Jemison's goal was to put herself in the very best position to become an astronaut. So after completing her degree in engineering, she decided to specialize and pursue medical school after college. If California was the epicenter of innovation, New York was the epicenter of healthcare. So Jemison applied to one of the best medical schools in the country, Cornell. With her stellar grades, Jemison was accepted. So after a summer working as an engineer for IBM, she drove her Camaro across the country to her parents' house in Chicago, where she left it. There was no way she could afford parking in Manhattan. As Jemison began medical school, she found herself once again a minority. 28% of her class was female. Only 9% was black. Medical school was nothing like her time at Stanford. On her very first day, they dissected a human cadaver. Yikes. Afterward, her new classmates all went out for lunch at a local deli. But she says she wasn't all that hungry. Unlike them, she hadn't planned on becoming a traditional physician. But that was information she kept to herself. Big dreams are often best kept under wraps. She says otherwise everyone would think she was insane. But one day, she let it slip to a classmate that becoming an astronaut was her ultimate plan. He said, You mean like the guys who go to the moon? Give me a break. As time went on, Jemison started adjusting to the concept of performing autopsies daily and acclimatizing to the competitive nature of medical school. 
One of the biggest challenges was that after being in class from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., med students studied all night, internalizing and memorizing mammoth amounts of information. But she loved the challenge. And by her second year, Jemison became the president of the Cornell chapter of the Student National Medical Association. Between school years, she traveled to Cuba as a research assistant. She traveled to Thailand. And in her final summer, she flew to Kenya to provide first aid and medical training. She says that experience was life-changing. She met with the people. She spoke the language. She says she was even mistaken for a local. Her hair looked like theirs. Natural texture was just the norm there. No one made comments about it. In fact, every single salon knew how to style it. To belong and to feel accepted felt incredible. When one graduates from medical school, they aren't immediately granted a license to practice medicine. They're first required to do an internship, followed by a residency. And for most Cornell Medical School grads, that meant doing so at a fancy New York City hospital. But for Jemison, the Upper East Side didn't feel like the place she wanted to devote her time and resources. Her heart was still in the developing countries she'd visited. She wanted to go back to Africa. Then, after a few years, she would return to the States and get a master's in engineering. But when she shared this plan with the deans at Cornell, they told her she was making a huge mistake. They said she'd fall behind her fellow classmates and end up far less accomplished. Having professors doubt her was a familiar feeling, so this time she stayed the course. Dr. May Jemison joined the Peace Corps as a medical officer, where, at just 26 years old, she became in charge of the health and wellness of all U.S. Peace Corps volunteers, staff members, and embassy officials in both Sierra Leone and Liberia. According to NASA's archives, by 1971, the vast majority of women employed at NASA were placed in clerical jobs. And NASA had no systematic civil rights element to its employment program. NASA still employed fewer racial minorities and women than any other agency in the federal government. So that year, they hired an African-American woman named Ruth Bates Harris as their, quote, chief equal employment officer to correct the problem. The New York Times reported that two years later, after Mrs. Harris conducted an internal investigation, she concluded that NASA hadn't taken adequate steps to hire more women and people of color. They'd, quote, failed to progress because they never made equal opportunity a priority. Her report stated that in the previous seven years, NASA had only increased its number of minority employees from 4% to 5%. It wasn't enough, and she called NASA's equality efforts a, quote, near-total failure. Well, that scathing report didn't make NASA look so good, and they promptly fired Ruth Bates Harris their highest-ranking black employee. It caused an uproar. Now NASA was in major political hot water. 
Soon, 50 national organizations began protesting the decision, including the NAACP, women's rights groups, and members of Congress. And NASA was forced to make some major changes. So over the remainder of the 70s and into the 80s, NASA began an active recruitment process specifically for women and minorities. But Jemison says in her memoir that minorities weren't so sure. After NASA's long history of rejecting African-American applicants, the Black community in particular wasn't prepared to take NASA's newfound commitment seriously. And very few applications were submitted. So NASA had to up their game. And that's when they decided to make a connection between NASA and Star Trek. Actress Nichelle Nichols had played Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek series, the only black actress in the show's main cast. Nichols had been vocal about the space program's lack of female and minority astronauts. And as a result, she was appointed to the board of directors of the National Space Institute and invited to NASA headquarters. NASA asked Nichols to help them recruit more minorities to the program. So they made a short film starring Nichols, talking about the benefits of joining NASA and the excitement of fantasy meeting reality. Nichols began touring the country with NASA to recruit qualified, intelligent wannabe astronauts who had otherwise never been given a chance. And the applications began pouring in. One of those applicants was a woman named Sally Ride. Ride was a Caucasian physicist and fellow Stanford grad who had applied to the program the year NASA and Nichols joined forces. And out of thousands of applicants, was accepted. Six years later, in the spring of 1983, Sally Ride stepped through the shuttle doors, becoming the first American woman to fly in space. One small step for woman, one giant leap for womankind. Later that same year, decorated Air Force pilot and engineer Gion Bluford also made history, becoming the very first African-American man to ever fly in space. The times they were a-changing. A short while later, the stars aligned for Jemison. NASA's Equal Opportunity Program was up and running. Jemison had completed her BA and her MD and had gained valuable real-world experience. It was time to fulfill her childhood dream and become a NASA astronaut. In 1986, Mae Jemison submitted an application to NASA. Thousands of hopefuls across the country applied that year and waited in suspense for a letter in the mail or maybe a phone call. Anything that would tell them that they too might be the next Gion Bluford or Sally Ride. One afternoon, an envelope arrived at Jemison's home with NASA letterhead. Inside were forms to fill out, requesting a background check for security clearance. It wasn't an acceptance letter, but it was the next step in the process, a really good sign. But before Jemison could send back the completed forms, something devastating happened. 
On January 28, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger, carrying six astronauts and one civilian school teacher, exploded just 73 seconds after liftoff, killing everyone on board on live TV. The school teacher was set to become the first civilian in outer space. She'd won the spot in a contest. The cold weather that morning had caused a malfunction in the shuttle's equipment. It was a horrifying tragedy. That year, NASA suspended its astronaut selection process altogether, which meant that the 1986 applications were shelved. Applicants were informed that their resumes would remain on file, probably in a drawer somewhere gathering dust. Jemison had gotten so close to her dream, and in just 73 seconds, it was over. A full year passed, and Jemison moved back to Los Angeles to pursue her engineering master's and work as a doctor in West L.A. One day, she was coming home from a workout class when she stopped at her mailbox. She slid out a bundle of envelopes and jogged up the steps to her apartment. Jemison mindlessly shuffled through the mail, and lo and behold, there was another letter on NASA letterhead. Once again, it requested background checks for security clearance. Jemison was thrilled. She couldn't believe NASA still remembered her. She completed the forms immediately and sent them back, then waited. A few long weeks later, her telephone rang. It was NASA requesting Jemison come to the Johnson Space Center in Houston for a week of interviews. 2,000 people had applied, 100 were contacted for interviews, and only 15 would ultimately be selected. Jemison wondered how she could possibly get a whole week off work without telling anyone where she was going. Becoming an astronaut was still something she kept very hush-hush. So she told her boss, but swore her to secrecy. She bought a brand new suit, borrowed every library book on the history of space exploration, then hopped a flight to Houston. Jemison could barely control her excitement, but she was nervous. She knew she looked good on paper because of her grades, her degrees, and experience. But what if they didn't like her? She worried about her hair. When she got to Houston, Jemison was subject to what seemed like a million medical exams. There were blood tests, eye exams, and claustrophobia tests, where you sit in a small 3 by 3 chamber and try not to panic. Then they found something concerning. They told her she had a heart murmur. Jemison said she sat there and just had to laugh. She'd come this far. It was a valiant effort. It was heartbreaking that something so small could disqualify her from her dreams— but such is life, unpredictable. Then the cardiologist came back. He said the minor heart murmur wouldn't be an issue. She was still in the race. After her week with the Space Center in Houston, nearly a month went by without a word from NASA. Not a good sign. 
But that's when she started getting calls from her close friends, saying they'd just been questioned by the FBI. Good. They were checking up on her. She was still in the race. Then one afternoon, Jemison was in an exam room with a patient, discussing his lower back pain. She stepped down the hall to her office to grab his chart when her desk phone rang. So she answered. There was a man on the line. He said, Is this Dr. Mae Jemison? She said, Yes, it is. He said, This is NASA. And we want to know if you're still interested in becoming an astronaut. Out of 2,000 applications, Jemison was one of the 15 selected in 1987. They told her not to tell anyone until a formal press announcement was made. She couldn't stop smiling. Then she remembered her patient in the other room. In a daze, she walked back to the exam room and started examining his eyes and checking the dilation of his pupils. Until he stopped her and said, What does this have to do with my back? Oops. On September 12, 1992, Jemison boarded the shuttle Endeavour on NASA's 50th shuttle mission. The mission was set to carry out 44 different experiments. Jemison's dream come true. On liftoff, 7.7 million pounds of thrust accelerated the Endeavour from 0 to 17,000 miles per hour. In just eight minutes, they'd be in outer space. As Jemison stowed her fireproof launch suit, the flight commander called her up to the flight deck. He pointed out the window and said, Chicago's coming up. The first thing Jemison saw from space was her hometown. The very place she'd spent hours looking up at the sky and wondering about the universe. The place she saw her first ever Star Trek episode. The place where she'd watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and wondered why no one on that mission looked like her. The place her kindergarten teacher told her to set more realistic goals. As the endeavor made its way further into space, Jemison looked around at planet Earth, the moon, and the stars. And despite all the times where the world made her feel like she didn't belong, she says on that shuttle, floating above it all, she was exactly where she was meant to be the first woman of color in the world to go into outer space. Shoot for the stars. The term moonshot has taken on a special meaning over time. It's become detached from the moon itself and now means to attempt something that's never been done before. Even Google has a special moonshot division dedicated to dreaming up radical new business ventures. But a person can harbor a moonshot ambition too. Mae Jemison's dream of becoming an astronaut was a moonshot. The seed was planted in kindergarten when she put up her hand and said she wanted to be a scientist. But even at five years of age, the pushback began. Her teacher told her to focus on a more realistic goal. 
All through Mae Jemison's life, she never fit into a tidy little box. She was female, she was black, she was navigating a male-dominated industry, but she never stopped reaching for the stars. Even when she was ignored by teachers, dismissed by professors and laughed at by fellow students, and even when her goal must have seemed light years away. It's also important to stop for a moment and acknowledge the importance of art in people's lives. She was inspired by the genius of Star Trek in 1966. The artistry and vision of Gene Roddenberry inspired May not just to ask why, but why not me? Her internal compass was so true, so determined, that all the speed bumps and the slights and the snubs just melted in her path. May said that she wouldn't have cared if 2,000 people had gone up before her. She still wanted to do this. But there weren't 2,000 African-American women ahead of her. May was the pioneer, the one who would eventually land in the International Space Hall of Fame. What a profound moment it must have been for May Jemison to look out Endeavor's window to see her hometown of Chicago, the very place where she was first told she would never reach her goal. Just one of so many moments when people tried to push her dream into the black hole of impossibility. But only in darkness can you see the stars. In 1993, something truly wonderful happened. Mae Jemison became the first real-life astronaut to ever appear in Star Trek, The Next Generation. It was a full-circle, meant-to-be moment. Never, ever give up. Dr. Mae Jemison, Total Gaze in Space, 8. Orbits around the Earth, 127. Languages spoken, 4. Honorary doctorates, 9. Things are only impossible, until they're not. Star Trek. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We regret to inform you, our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is Find Where the Wind Goes, a memoir by Dr. Mae Jemison. Follow us on social at Apostrophe Pod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by one Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.